This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 5, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I am your host, Mutaki Ismail. And today we will be continuing our discussion about the first 100 years of Islam after the death of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now, before we get into the actual show, I just want to go over some statements I made in the last episode. I had indicated that we were going to start moving faster as we go through this series on the 100 years after the death of the prophet. However, after researching and looking at the two battles that we are going to discuss in this episode, I realized that I just had to go into depth because these two battles are so critical and so crucial to the advance of Islam in this period I just couldn't glaze over them as I had originally intended to do. So for better or for worse, we are going to go into depth with these two battles, the Battle of Yarmouk in Syria and the Battle of Cordesia in Persia. These were just very important battles in the advance of the Muslim Empire. These battles were just extremely crucial in conquering their respective areas. So you can kind of consider this like a bonus episode, though it really isn't. It is a true episode in the series, but it's just me having uh, second thoughts about my original intention to move fast. So we are going to take it slow in this episode and go into a little more depth. Without any further delay, we're going to go ahead and get into the show. Show notes for this episode will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash victory. So with that, here we go with the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 5. So let's begin by recapping where we are so far. In the year 632 of the Common Era, Prophet Muhammad wasallam, died and Abu Bakr was chosen by the residents of Medina as the caliph or the successor of the Prophet. Soon after his selection, however, several of the Arab tribes that were previously allied to Prophet Muhammad rebelled against Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr and his general, Khalid ibn Walid, led a successful campaign to bring these rebellious tribes back in line. These were known as the Wars of Ridda or the Wars of Apostasy in English. Ultimately, Abu Bakr and Khalid ibn Walid were successful, and after the success of this campaign, Abu Bakr commanded Khalid ibn Walid to begin an invasion of southern Persia. Khalid ibn Walid, just as he was successful in the wars of apostasy, he was also successful in conquering much of the area around the Euphrates River. While Khalid ibn Walid was invading Persia, Abu Bakr also ordered another companion named Abu Ubaidah to lead an invasion into Syria. Abu Ubaidah, however, ran into strong resistance in Syria from the ruling Romans or Byzantines, so Abu Bakr had to call Khalid ibn Walid over from Persia to assist. 
Khalid ibn Walid took over the campaign in Syria and led the Muslims to conquer much of Syria all the way up to the city of Damascus. Meanwhile, back in Medina, Abu Bakr eventually died and Umar ibn al-Khattab became the next caliph or successor of Prophet Muhammad One of the first things Umar did as caliph was remove Khalid ibn Walid as the general of the Muslim armies and he put Abu Ubaidah back in charge. After this, the Romans and the Persians got over their initial shock of the Muslim invasion and they began a strong counterattack. Today, we will cover this counterattack from the Romans and the Persians and how the Muslims responded. We will first discuss the Roman comeback in Syria and then the Persian comeback in Persia. But let's keep in mind that many of these events coincided and actually took place at the same time. One of the first things that Omar did was lift the ban on the former rebellious tribes known as the apostates or the Murtadin that had been imposed by Abu Bakr. Omar needed more bodies, he needed more men, and that ban was simply impractical. All right, so let's pick up with the Muslims after Abu Ubaidah took over command from Khalid ibn Walid and the Muslims are now victorious in Damascus. After the Muslims had conquered Damascus, they then fought the Romans at the Battle of Fihl. Fihl was located in modern-day Palestine, just south of Damascus. This was one of the last Roman outposts in Palestine, other than the city of Jerusalem itself, which Khalid ibn Walid had avoided for a long time because it was so strongly protected and heavily garrisoned. Khalid ibn Walid, by the way, he continued to serve faithfully under the command of Abu Ubaidah, and Abu Ubaidah, recognizing Khalid ibn Walid's superiority in military skill, he sent him to face the Romans in Fihil, coast of Palestine. Now, the battle at Fihil lasted for about two days before the Romans eventually fled, and Khalid ibn Walid, as you have heard many times before, was once again victorious. With most of southern Syria under their control, the Muslims continued to push north and then they laid siege to Emesa, which we now know of as the city of Homs in Syria. So Heraclius, the Roman emperor, he eventually abandoned Emesa and fled further north to the city of Antioch, which is in modern-day southern Turkey. With the emperor having fled and not enough soldiers in the city of Emesa itself, the city of Emesa peacefully capitulated to the Muslims and agreed to pay the jizya tax. While all this was going on, the Muslims defeated the Romans at several other locations around Damascus, including the cities of Beth She'an to the south and Sidon and Beirut on the Mediterranean coast. No matter what Heraclius seemed to do, his armies were defeated. He tried again and again to push the Muslims back, but had absolutely no success. By the year 636, four years after the prophet's death, Heraclius had lost all of his territory in the Levant except for the city of Jerusalem. But the Muslims were not done yet. Abu Ubaidah and Khalid ibn Walid continued to push north, intending to attack Heraclius himself in Antioch. 
Heraclius sensing and knowing that danger was coming his way, he began to work closely with the Persian emperor Yezdujir, hoping that they could coordinate their attacks and perhaps split or divide the Muslim attention on these two fronts. The plan, if it was going to work, was that Heraclius would try to wage some sort of strong comeback against the Muslims, while Yezdujir and the Persians were supposed to launch an attack on the Muslims at the same time. However, the Persian government being the mess that it was, it was just not able to hold up their end of the bargain, and also Omar by this time had placed several spies within the Persian government. Omar, knowing of the collaboration between the Romans and the Persians, decided to try a little bit of maneuvering of his own. Rather than continue to try to wage war on two different fronts, Omar ibn al-Khattab ordered his general in Persia, a close companion of Prophet Muhammad wasallam, named Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, Omar ordered this man to open diplomatic talks with the Persians. This would allow Omar to focus his attention on the Romans in Syria while the Persians were going through meaningless diplomatic talks that were only meant to be a diversion. After all, these diplomatic talks in Persia were nothing more than a delaying tactic because ultimately Sa'ad ibn Abi Bakas never changed his demands from those of Khalid ibn Walid before him. Simply put, the Muslims requested one of three things. Either the Persians would accept Islam and then everything would go on as it was before, or the Persians would have to pay the jizya and submit to Muslim control, or they were going to have to meet each other in the battlefield. So while Omar ibn Khattab and Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas were able to bog down the Persians in these meaningless diplomatic talks, Heraclius in Syria was amassing this huge army to try to take back his territory. He ultimately was able to put together an army of over 200,000. To create this army, of course, he had to pull soldiers from all over the Eastern Roman Empire, including Slavs and Russians and even Christian Arabs and other types of Europeans. Now, one thing to understand is that while the Muslim victories were definitely impressive, they had really put themselves at a disadvantage. Now, every time the Muslims conquered a new city or a new area, they had to occupy that. They had to leave forces and soldiers there to control the city. Otherwise, the Romans and the Persians would just come right back in and take it right back over. So as the Muslims continued to conquer these places and move so rapidly, they eventually spread out their already outnumbered army. Their soldiers, their military force was just getting thinner and thinner and thinner as they pushed further north in both Syrian and Persian territory. And the bulk of the Muslim forces were primarily Arabs. And there were only but so many Arabs in the world at that time. So Heraclius put together 
as best of a plan as he could. He planned to divide his huge and massive army up and attack each of the Muslim strongholds throughout Syria. Even though the Muslims had conquered all of this land territory, they had no navy to speak of. The Romans had full control of the sea. They planned to invade this newly conquered Muslim territory through the Mediterranean coast and attack the Muslims there. The plan, according to Heraclius, was that while the Muslims' attention was diverted by these coastal attacks, he would then send out his strongest and largest forces from the north to retake Emesa and then Damascus. But as things would go, it just didn't work out that way. Khalid ibn Walid learned about this plan from a couple of captured Roman soldiers. And since he was second in command now, he advised Abu Ubaidah, and we say that with air quotes, to consolidate the Muslim forces in the area known as Jibia near Lake Tiberias in Palestine. This would mean the Muslims would have to withdraw most of their forces from all of this territory that they had conquered and move further south in order to have a strong enough force to take on the Syrians. Because as they were now spread out throughout the Levant, throughout Syria and Lebanon and Palestine, they weren't going to be able to handle this large force coming from the north. Abu Ubaidah agreed with Khalid ibn Walid and the Muslim forces began to withdraw from most of these lands that they had conquered over the past two years and this included Damascus. Now, one famous story from this time was before abandoning Damascus, Abu Ubaidah returned the jizya to the people of Damascus. And his reasoning was that part of the deal for the citizens and residents of Damascus paying the jizya was that the Muslims would protect them. However, now that it had become evident that the Muslims would not be able to protect them, Abu Ubaidah felt it was mandatory to return the jizya. This was a new thing. People are not used to the government returning their taxes to them. Abu Ubaidah ordered the Muslim commanders in other parts of the Levant to do the same thing. So the Muslim forces withdrew and they settled in a plain near the Yarmouk River in modern-day Palestine. While they were doing this, the Roman forces filtered into these abandoned areas from both the north and from the west by the sea and essentially reconquered the area that they had lost to the Muslims, even though all they were doing was walking into abandoned cities. But of course, they had not come in this area to just simply take over abandoned cities. They meant to expel the Muslims from the Levant completely. So even though they had all this area retaken, they had to follow the Muslims further south into Palestine towards the Yarmouk River, which is exactly what Khalid ibn Walid had planned. Ultimately, the Roman forces set up camp just across the Yarmouk River from the Muslims, and for about a month, there were negotiations between the two sides, but of course, they didn't go anywhere. The Romans would ask, what do you want? Why are you here? We will give you money to go back if that's what you need. If you need food, we will give you that also to go back. Just get out of our area. 
the Muslims within respond and primarily call it Ibn Walid. We want you to become Muslim or at least pay the jizya. And as far as the stuff you want to give us, don't worry about that. They will be ours anyway very soon once we conquer your territory. And of course, just like in Persia, during these negotiations, the Muslims were able to fortify their positions and they were strengthened by more forces coming up from Arabia sent by Omar ibn al-Khattab. And these forces included some of the most famous names in Muslim history, such as Zubair ibn al-Awam and other veterans of the early battles of Prophet Muhammad wasallam. Eventually, both sides realized that there was going to be no peaceful resolution and the only way that this whole thing would be resolved was through battle. Abu Ubaidah, he was the overall Muslim commander, but he wisely allowed Khalid ibn Walid to be the general of the battlefield and manage all affairs regarding actual fighting. The Romans, however, they faced a lot of difficulty during this whole period. First of all, their plan to divide the Muslim army was completely shot when Khalid ibn Walid consolidated his forces near the Yarmouk River. This really ruined the Romans' plan. Secondly, as they came into these abandoned cities that we had mentioned earlier, they faced attacks from some of their own former subjects because the people of Damascus and all these areas, they were like, we prefer the Muslims to you. We don't want you here. Go back. So they were actually often attacked by the residents of Syria, the people that they were supposedly supposed to be liberating. Now, the reason for this was because, as we mentioned before, the chain of supply for armies was very important. And so when this massive 200,000 strong Roman army came through these new areas, they essentially had to live off of the land, which means they raided the farms and the storehouses and the warehouses of the people of Syria, which turned the people of Syria against their former rulers. And besides, most of these soldiers were not from the Levant. They were from parts of Europe and it just wasn't going very well. And so many of these people rebelled against the very people who were coming to liberate them from the Muslims. On top of all that, all of these different ethnic groups within the Roman army didn't always get along. They very often clashed and disputed even among themselves. So when the negotiations fell through and it became evident that there was no more talking to be done, the two sides prepared for battle in late August 636. Before we get into the details of the battle, there is one story I want to share, and this is about one of the Roman commanders named George. And just before the battle began, he met with Khalid ibn Walid, and he began to ask him questions about Islam, and Khalid ibn Walid answered them as best as he could. And this Roman commander named George, he immediately accepted Islam and switched sides. Of course, this did not make him very popular with the Romans. And as was customary during this time, before the actual battle began, the two sides, they lined up and they had their champions come out and duel each other. This was a way of motivating your side if you were the victor and hopefully demoralizing the other side if they were the loser. 
So after all the dueling was done between the Muslim champions and the Roman champions, it was time for this huge battle, which would become known as the Battle of Yarmouk, and it would last for roughly six days. The Romans by this time had roughly 150,000 soldiers, and the Muslims had about 40,000. Khalid ibn Walid, for his part, he intended to mostly fight defensively until the time came right to switch to an offensive strategy. The Romans, on the first day of battle, decided to mostly test the Muslim strength and they sent out various light detachments and light cavalry to test the Muslim strength and see if maybe they could poke their way through with some light infantry. But all of these attacks were quickly and easily beaten back by the Muslims, who by this time were very much veterans of warfare. The real battle would begin on the second day when the Romans decided to attack the Muslims early at dawn while they were in their morning prayers. However, Khalid ibn Walid was prepared for this. At first, the Romans were successful. They were able to successfully put pressure on the Muslim flanks, both the right and the left flanks, but they weren't able to penetrate through the Muslim center lines. The pressure on the Muslim right flank got so intense, in fact, that Khalid ibn Walid had to order a reserve force that he kept back just in case things got hairy to support the right flank. When this reserve force of cavalry joined the Muslim right flank, they were able to push the Romans back and bring some stability on the right side of the battle lines. But while the right flanks of the Muslim battle lines were stabilizing and they were able to push the Romans right back, the left flanks of the Muslim battle lines were beginning to crumble. So Khalid ibn Walid had that same reserve force break off from the right, go across the battlefield to the left, and support them against the Roman pressure on that side. Khalid ibn Walid continued to have this reserve force alternate between supporting the right flank and the left flank, continuously keeping the Romans at bay. When all was said and done, by the end of the second day, neither side had really gained anything and all of the advances that the Romans had made were ultimately lost and the battle line stood as they did that morning. On the third day of battle, the Romans decided to concentrate more heavily on the right and center flanks of the Muslims. And just like the day before, initially the Romans were successful and the Muslims lost a lot of ground. But once again, Khalid ibn Walid called in his reserve cavalry to support all of the areas that were beginning to crumble or weaken. This time, the cavalry mostly focused on the Muslim right flank since that was where the Romans were trying to put the most focus as well. Ultimately, by the end of that day, things stood as they had at the beginning of that day and at the end of the day before that, the Romans had lost all of the gains that they had made and ultimately, neither side seemed to be making any serious headway. But there was one critical thing that had to be recognized. Even though 
neither side had really gained or lost much ground, the Romans were expending and losing much more soldiers than the Muslims were. And while the Muslims could say they had lost some soldiers in defense of their battle lines, the Romans had lost much, much more and hadn't gained anything. They had nothing to show for it. The Muslims, for their part, they were satisfied that they were able to hold their ground against such superior numbers and against an enemy that had superior weapons and training. But the Romans, however, were beginning to show a few cracks in their resolve. On the fourth day of battle, the Romans decided to redo the same strategy that they had done the day before, because even though they hadn't broken through the Muslim lines, they had put a lot of pressure on them, and they saw this as being somewhat successful. Therefore, they decided to repeat the same thing again. Once again, the Romans decided to focus more heavily on the Muslim right and right center flanks. And this time, they were actually able to punch through to a certain extent on the Muslim lines, and Khalid ibn Walid had to bring in his reserve force. But this time, because the Romans were focusing on both the right and the right center, Khalid ibn Walid had to divide his reserve cavalry into two different forces and have them supplement and aid two different weakened parts of the Muslim battle lines. And even though the Romans were focusing more heavily on the right, that does not mean that they completely ignored the center and the left. While the Romans were not able to make too many advances in the center battle lines, they were able to inflict heavy casualties on the Muslim left flank. This was because the Romans decided to use primarily archers against the Muslim left. And since the Muslims on the left flank could not necessarily advance without Khalid ibn Walid's orders, they pretty much had to just hold their ground and try to defend themselves as best as they could against the Roman archers. However, even though the Arabs had good archers, their bows and arrows were not nowhere near as good as the Romans, so they did not fly as far, nor did they cause as much damage when they did hit the mark. But despite the heavy damage that the Muslims suffered on the left flank, the Romans were not able to break through primarily because they weren't really focusing on breaking through. They were mostly focusing on the right side. Secondly, they just weren't able to get through the Muslim defenders on the left. But despite the resolve of the Muslims, despite their bravery, the Romans were able to punch through their lines on a few occasions. In fact, they got so far as to actually reach the Muslim tents behind the battle lines where the women were caring for the wounded. To the Roman surprise, when they reached these tents, the Muslim women would rush out with swords of their own and join their men in fighting off the Romans. Seeing the women fight side by side with them must have invigorated and revitalized the Muslims because they got their act together and were able to push the Romans back to their original starting point. This was the most damaging day for the Muslims and they had heavy casualties on this day of fighting. 
one of the most prominent casualties was Ikrimah ibn Abu Jahl. Ikrimah was one of Abu Bakr's generals along with Khalid ibn Walid who were very prominent in the Muslim victories during the wars of apostasy. And as you can tell from his name, he was the son of the primary enemy of Islam, Abu Jahl. And just like his father, Ikrimah was at one point of time also an enemy of Islam. In fact, there is a famous story involving Ikrimah during the time of Prophet Muhammad wasallam. This was during the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. To give you some background on the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, one year Prophet Muhammad and many of his companions, about 1,000, decided to make Umrah. They were living in Medina and decided to make the minor pilgrimage to Mecca. When the Quraysh, the primary tribe of Mecca, learned that the Muslims were on their way, they sent an advance party outside of Mecca to stop the Muslims. If you didn't know, at this stage of time, the Muslims of Medina and the Quraysh of Mecca were in a state of warfare. However, the culture of the time dictated that anyone who wanted to make pilgrimage to Mecca, even if they were at war or in a state of hostility with the Quraysh, would be allowed to go through. But when it came time for the Muslims to do this, the Quraysh decided to stop them. As far as the Quraysh were concerned, they were going to lose one way or the other. They had a reputation to uphold as the protectors and maintainers of the Kaaba. However, they were violating one of the primary tenets of their role as protectors of the Kaaba in not allowing someone to visit it when culturally they were supposed to do so. However, at the same time, they really didn't like the idea of their main enemy, an enemy that had ultimately torn their society apart. They didn't really like the idea of allowing him into Mecca and giving him free reign. So, the Muslims and the Quraysh entered into negotiations to see how they could resolve this. When I say that they were enemies at this time, believe me, they were enemies. They had already had at least two battles, really three battles at the time of this incident. Well, ultimately, the two sides came to a deal and the person they sent, the Quraysh that is sent out to finalize the deal, was none other than Ikrimah ibn Abu Jahal, whose father Abu Jahal had been killed in battle by the Muslims a few years earlier. When it came time to finalize the deal, Prophet Muhammad wasallam asked his cousin Ali to write his name, indicating that the Prophet agreed to this. The Prophet did not know how to read and write. When Ali wrote the Prophet's name, he put Muhammad Rasulullah. Ikramah ibn Abu Jahal, when he saw this, he said, you cannot put that. That is what we're fighting about. We do not believe that he is Rasulullah. We do not believe that he is the messenger of Allah. So you must remove that phrase. Prophet Muhammad told Ali to take off Rasulullah and simply put ibn Abdullah, Muhammad ibn Abdullah, the son of Abdullah. Ali, however, he loved the messenger and he refused to erase the phrase Rasulullah, messenger of Allah. 
So instead, the prophet asked Ali to point out the word for him, and he removed it himself. The purpose of me going on this tangent was to show you how much hatred and enmity there was at one point between Ikrama and the Muslims. He didn't even want to write the phrase Rasulullah after the Prophet's name. However, years later, when the Muslims conquered Mecca, Ikrama accepted Islam and he took his shahada at the hand of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And as you've heard in the previous episodes of this season, Ikrama ibn Abu Jahal was one of Abu Bakr's most trusted generals. So the loss of Ikrama ibn Abu Jahal during the Battle of Yarmouk was a serious blow to the Muslim cause. However, as many soldiers as the Muslims lost, the Romans lost many, many more. On this day of battle, the fourth day of battle, that was the closest the Romans got to victory. And their morale at having been so close to victory, yet not getting it and still losing it, their morale was sinking lower and lower and lower. They had lost so many men, there were so many casualties, yet they had made no real gains in the battle. On the other side, however, Khalid ibn Walid, he could sense this faltering in their spirit. He knew that they were near breaking. He knew that he was very close to having the perfect opportunity in defeating the enemy. Khalid ibn Walid knew that all he had to do was hold out a little bit longer than the Romans and victory would be his. Up to this time, the Muslims had been fighting defensively, allowing the Romans to attack them and simply fighting them off. However, Khalid ibn Walid knew that it was time to go on the offensive. There was little fighting on the fifth day of battle, and both sides took this opportunity to review their plans, care for the wounded, and see how they had advanced so far. Khalid ibn Walid, for his part, used this time to organize his cavalry and shore up any of the various escape routes for the Romans, making sure that when it came time for the battle, the Romans would not find it easy to run away. Finally, the sixth day of battle came and the two sides lined up for warfare. Khalid ibn Walid made one slight change. He had taken several of his infantry and put them on horses, turning them into cavalry. So on the sixth day of battle, Khalid ibn Walid entered with 8,000 members in his cavalry. Before the battle started, one of the Roman generals, a guy named Gregory, he stepped forward and challenged the Muslim commander to a duel. Everyone may have thought it was Khalid ibn Walid as he was calling all of the shots, but in reality, Abu Ubaidah was the true leader and the true commander. Khalid ibn Walid offered to step forward and fight this Gregory, but Abu Ubaidah, as the true leader, he insisted that he had to do it. 
Khalid ibn Walid was afraid for Abu Ubaidah because from Khalid ibn Walid's perspective, he was the better fighter and quite frankly, he was. He was the general for most of the conquest during this period. Abu Ubaidah was seen as the pious guy who, even though he was very brave and courageous, most of the soldiers knew that he was in that position not by merit, but because he was favored by Omar ibn al-Khattab, the caliph. And to everyone's surprise, including perhaps Khalid ibn Walid, the humble, pious, soft-spoken Abu Ubaidah defeated the boisterous, loud, and rowdy Gregory. Seeing their general cut down by Abu Ubaidah was a serious blow to the Romans' already low morale. When the battle began, the Muslim infantry, the foot soldiers, attacked the Romans in the center. Meanwhile, Khalid ibn Walid, he led the cavalry and swung around the battle flanks and attacked the Romans from their left. So ultimately, the Romans on the left had to fight from both two different angles, both the Muslim foot soldiers coming straight at them, as well as Khalid ibn Walid and the cavalry coming from their left side. This intense pressure was just too much for the Roman cavalry, and they eventually broke ranks and ran away. But when they did that, that exposed the Roman infantry. With the cavalry gone, the Roman foot soldiers, their infantry in the center, were now exposed to Khalid ibn Walid and his cavalry. Khalid ibn Walid and the cavalry continued to press on the Roman foot soldiers in the center who now had to deal with the same thing that the cavalry before them had to deal with. They had to deal with the Muslim infantry right in front of them as well as the Muslim cavalry coming in pressing on their left side. And just like the cavalry before them also crumbled before the pressure. And this just caused a domino effect as the Muslim forces just rolled over the Roman ranks. And the Romans crumbled under the onslaught of the Muslims coming at them from the front and from the left. The Roman forces collapsed on themselves and before long, the entire army had been routed and was in full retreat. But Khalid ibn Walid wasn't quite done just yet. And now that the Roman army was in retreat, Khalid ibn Walid lined up his forces to pursue them. Some of the Romans retreated from the battlefield in haste and panic, and others retreated in order and with good discipline. Regardless of how they retreated, they were retreating and that made them prime targets for the Muslim soldiers. That was because Khalid ibn Walid had sealed up all of the escape routes the night before. So everywhere the fleeing Romans ran, they ran into a Muslim detachment. This forced them into a bottleneck as they all ran for the only remaining escape route. And this was there by design by Khalid ibn Walid. The only escape route left open by Khalid ibn Walid was a bridge crossing over a deep ravine. At the bottom of this ravine was the Yarmouk River, and its walls were over 200.
hundred feet high. But as the Romans tried to cross over the bridge, they realized that the other end was manned by another Muslim detachment of soldiers. So the Romans had no other choice but to turn back around and face the Muslims who were hot on their heels. The Romans knew there was no way they could fight Muslims on either end from a bridge. So they had no other choice but to turn back around and face the pursuing Muslims. The Romans were now cornered. To their backs was this deep ravine, definite death if they fell down. In front of them was Khalid ibn Walid's army, and they were ready to cut them down as well. It was all the Romans could do was to grab their swords and try to fight as best as they could and hope that somehow they could survive the impossible. The Muslims formed a semicircle around the Romans and the final bloody fighting began. The Romans were huddled into one mass, their swords in hand, and behind them was this deep ravine. The Muslims began to creep in, and the two sides began fighting. The Romans fighting for their dear life, and the Muslims fighting to either kill them or push them off the cliff into the ravine. To the Romans' credit, they fought as best as they could. Many Muslim soldiers died in this last final push, but ultimately there was nothing they could do. Some tried to escape by climbing down the ravine, the walls of the ravine, and those who did that, the vast majority of them did not make it. Most of them were cut down by the Muslim soldiers. Those who were not were forced over the edges of the cliff and fell to their deaths. And with that, with this final battle, the Battle of Yarmouk, the Roman presence in Syria had come to an end, as well as any Roman hope for ever reconquering Syria and the Levant. The Byzantine Emperor Heraclius fled with the remnants of his army back to Antioch in southern Turkey. And soon after that, the Muslims went on to reoccupy all of the cities and forts that they had abandoned earlier. And now, Jerusalem was the only major city left in the Levant that was not under Muslim control. If you remember from previous episodes, Khalid ibn Walid had avoided attacking Jerusalem because of its strong defenses, its strong walls, and its heavy garrison forces. But now, Jerusalem was a lone island surrounded by Muslim-held territory. A few days after the victory at the Battle of Yarmouk, Khalid ibn Walid and Abu Ubaidah led the forces to Jerusalem and they promptly laid siege to the city. It wasn't long before the patriarch of the city, the primary religious authority of Jerusalem, came out seeking peace with the Muslims and he agreed to pay the jizya. However, he had one condition. He would only turn over the city to the leader of the Muslim empire. Jerusalem was too important of a city to hand over to a mere general. He would only give the city to Omar ibn al-Khattab himself. 
So Abu Ubaidah sent word back to Medina, letting Omar ibn al-Khattab know of the patriarch's demands. Omar discussed the situation with his advisors. Some of his advisors said Omar should go, while others said he should not. After all, the Muslims already had the city. There was no reason for Omar to put himself in unnecessary danger. Ultimately, however, Omar decided that it was right for him to go to Jerusalem and accept the conquered city on the Muslims' behalf. Omar's journey to Jerusalem and the city's subsequent surrender to him is the story of legend. Omar traveled to Jerusalem with only one servant and one donkey. Omar and the servant, however, shared the donkey between them. Sometimes Omar would ride the donkey, sometimes the servant would ride the donkey, and sometimes Omar and the servant would walk and allow the donkey to rest. By the time they arrived at the city, Omar's clothes, which were already simple and threadbare to begin with, were now dirty and dusty and caked with mud due to the travel from Medina. And as it happened, as the story goes, when they arrived at Medina, it happened to be the servant's turn to ride the donkey while it was Omar's turn to walk. And so when the people of Jerusalem saw these men arrive, they looked at Omar and they thought that he was the servant and that the servant who was riding on the donkey was actually the caliph. It wasn't until they saw the men greet Omar and completely ignore the servant that they realized who they were dealing with. And after surrendering the city to Omar, he then began to ride the donkey through the streets of Jerusalem. And as the story goes, the religious people, the religious Christians and the Jews who saw Omar covered in muddy, dirty clothes, when they saw this sight, they broke down in tears as seeing that they had been conquered by such a religious and pious man. It was just so overwhelming to see a man who had so much political power and might behave and act and look and dress in such a humble, simple manner. But now Jerusalem was secured and the Muslims had almost complete control over Syria. There were still a few Roman holdouts, but they would be vanquished before long. With this situation, Khalid ibn Walid and Abu Ubaidah continued to press north, past Damascus, past Emesa, towards Heraclius in his fortified city of Antioch in southern Turkey. But we will have to cover those exploits at a later time. Right now, we are going to turn our attention towards Persia, where things aren't looking so rosy for the Muslims. From the Persian perspective, they were absolutely relieved when Abu Bakr summoned Khalid ibn Walid to leave Persia and support Abu Ubaidah over in Syria. This was one of the best things that could happen to them, so they thought. The Persians took this as an opportunity to attempt to retake back some of their land. 
And with Khalid ibn Walid's departure, the companion of Prophet Muhammad wasallam, named Muthanna became the leader of the Muslim forces in Persia. Just a little background about Muthanna. We have mentioned him before in the third episode of the second season of the Islamic History Podcast. We mentioned how he was one of the first companions to begin raiding Persia, even while Abu Bakr and Khalid ibn Walid were still dealing with the wars of apostasy. It was Muthanna who ultimately advised Abu Bakr to begin the invasion of Persia because Muthanna realized just how easy it was. Muthanna, however, was hoping that Abu Bakr would put him in charge of the invasion of Persia. But he recognized that Khalid ibn Walid was the hero and had gained Abu Bakr's trust during the wars of apostasy, so he was willing to take a second seat to Khalid ibn Walid when Abu Bakr did turn his attention to Persia. Now bear in mind, even though Muthanna was not as great of a leader and a warrior as Khalid ibn Walid, he wasn't a slouch by any stretch of the imagination. He was a very successful general in his own right. However, he just was not as good as Khalid ibn Walid. It is like comparing Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan. Okay, definitely Michael Jordan is the greater of the two, but you would be mistaken to underestimate Kobe Bryant in his prime. Muthanna was the Kobe Bryant to Khalid ibn Walid's Michael Jordan. And now that Khalid ibn Walid was gone, now that Michael Jordan had retired, so to speak, the Persians realized that this was an opportunity to try to strike back at the Muslims, and they began to gather their forces. Muthanna recognized what the Persians were doing, and he knew that he would not be able to hold this territory with the few troops that he'd had. Remember, when Khalid ibn Walid left, he took about 10,000 soldiers with him. So Muthanna sent word to Omar ibn al-Khattab, who was the caliph by this time, letting him know that the Persians were preparing for a massive counterattack and that he needed more troops, and more soldiers. Omar ibn al-Khattab didn't respond, and he did send more troops from Medina up to Persia. Unfortunately for Muthanna, Omar also appointed someone else as the leader of the troops in Persia over Muthanna, who had been there from the beginning, even before Khalid ibn Walid. But Muthanna, he kept his composure. He did not get upset about it. He most likely was somewhat disappointed inside, but he accepted the caliph's recommendation. Unfortunately for the Muslims, however, Omar's selection was not as competent as either Muthanna or Khalid ibn Walid. He was a brave man, but unfortunately also a little reckless and just not as good of a general as Muthanna and Khalid ibn Walid, and that would lead to some serious Muslim losses towards the beginning of this campaign. On the other side, there was the general Rustam, who had been appointed by the Persian emperor Yezdujir to lead the Persian forces against the Muslims. And now just a little background on the Persian general Rustam. 
His full name was Rustam Farahzid, and he was from the noble house of Ispahudan. The family of Ispahudan was very well connected in Persian politics and had been a key player in much of the turmoil that was going on in the Persian royal family during this period. In fact, Rustam and his father had actually rebelled against one of the early Persian emperors, in fact, the very same emperor who had torn up the letter from Prophet Muhammad wasallam. For a brief period, in fact, Rustam and his father created an independent state within the Persian Empire. Eventually, that independent state rejoined the empire, but in order to do that, Rustam's father became appointed as the prime minister. By this time, Persia was ruled by a woman and Rustam's father tried to marry her. She eventually had him poisoned and Rustam avenged his father's assassination by killing the empress. Through a whole nother set of wheelings and dealings, Rustam almost initiated another civil war within the Persian Empire, but by now the people were so tired of all the turmoil, they forced Rustam and the other generals in Persia to work together and try to find some way to combat against Khalid ibn Walid and the approaching Muslim forces. Eventually, they chose the young man Yazdujir as the emperor, and Rustam offered his services as one of the primary generals. But bear this in mind, Rustam, even though he was a competent general, he was also a politician. While I'm certain he wanted to protect his homeland and he cared about his home being conquered by the Muslims, one of the most important things to him was acquiring as much power as he possibly could. And so now that Khalid ibn Walid was gone and the empire was beginning to experience a little bit of stability on the throne, the emperor Yazdujir ordered Rustam the general to push the Muslims out of their land. And while Rustam would obey his emperor's command, almost certainly he was looking for an opportunity to gain as much power as he could. In order to prepare to push the Muslims out, Rustam began to gather this massive force pulled from people and tribes and villages from all across the Persian Empire. The main thing that Rustam wanted was to push the Muslims out of the Euphrates River region and make it as difficult as possible for them to ever come back into Persia again. At this time, Omar's reinforcements had not yet arrived in Persia, and so Muthanna, the current Muslim commander in Persia, he did a similar thing to what Khalid ibn Walid did in Syria. His forces were also spread a little bit too far out, and they had pushed too far too fast, so he began to pull them back and consolidate them in one area as close to the desert as possible. They ultimately abandoned all of their territory on the northern side of the Euphrates River, the side that was closest to the Persians, and pulled everything on the southern side of the Euphrates River and just came as far as they could away from the Persian masses. 
Rustam led his forces down to the Euphrates River and eventually the two sides lined up on opposite sides of the river. The Persians challenged the Muslims to come across but Muthanna knew that was an unwise thing to do and he refused to do so. Ultimately, however, Omar's reinforcements did arrive and Muthanna had to once again play second fiddle to Omar's selection as the Muslim commander. This commander, however, once again, not as competent as either Muthanna or Khalid ibn Walid and perhaps a little bit reckless, he decided to accept the Persian challenge even though Muthanna advised him not to. Ultimately, while you might call this a brave act, it was a really foolish thing to do because the Muslim forces in Persia were way outnumbered, they were in foreign territory, and once they crossed the river, they no longer had the desert at their back. They only had the river at their back. And one of the best tactics the Arabs had was that they could always disappear into the desert where no intelligent person would follow them if things ever went wrong during one of their battles. But now that they had crossed the river, that option was nullified. The Muslims crossed the river and fought the Persians, and they fought the Persians bravely, but ultimately the Muslims were beaten badly. Over 4,000 soldiers were killed, many of them simply by drowning in the river, either by trying to get away or by being forced back by the Persian forces. The commander of the Muslim forces himself was also killed when he was crushed by a war elephant that the Persians had brought into the battle. When the commander was killed, Muthanna took over and he was able to organize a decent retreat back across the river. Nonetheless, this was the worst defeat for the Muslims in Persia. Also, it would be the only defeat for the Muslims in Persia. Muthanna and the Muslims in Persia were pretty much back to where they had started. Omar ibn Khattab has sent almost 4,000 soldiers to Persia as reinforcements and almost exactly that number was killed during the Battle of the Bridge. So Omar himself had some serious problems on his hands. He was trying to wage war on two different fronts against two different enemies that were superior to his forces in both training, in numbers, in wealth, and in weapons. And so Omar had no other choice but to put out another call throughout the Arabian Peninsula calling for more volunteers to join the battle in Persia. Rustam and the other Persians, however, were elated at this victory because for a long time it seemed as if the Muslims were unbeatable. But now, with this victory at the river, they prepared for another assault to continue to push the Muslims as far away from Persia as they most possibly could. Muthanna, however, once again, back in charge of the forces in Persia, began to pull his forces further back away from the Euphrates and towards an area known as Buwaib, which is close to modern-day Kuwait. The Persians weren't going to wait for Omar to send more reinforcements, and they followed Muthanna and the Muslims on down to Buwaib near Kuwait, and once again, the two sides were ultimately ready to line up for battle again. 
Muthanna now in charge, he knew he wasn't going to go across that river again, and so he challenged the Persians to come across to his side. The Persians, being full of confidence from their previous victory, agreed to do so and came across the river, which is exactly what Muthanna wanted. This battle would be known as the Battle of Buwaib, and this time it went in the Muslims' favor, and it was the Persians who would wind up having thousands of soldiers drowning in the river. And so, this very fertile area between the Tigris and the Euphrates, where the two rivers came together, this once again fell under the control of the Muslim forces. And the Persians were beginning to wonder, perhaps those Muslims were unbeatable after all. But the Persians weren't done just yet. They had reoccupied much of the area that the Muslims had to abandon as they pulled away from the Euphrates River. And even though the Persians had lost the Battle of Buwaib, they still had a lot of fight left in them. In addition to fighting the Muslims militarily, the Persians also fought the Muslims politically. They would send various agents into the different occupied territories that the Muslims had and stoke rebellion in the populations there. And the Muslims really didn't have the forces to hold on to these areas. Omar was consistently back in Medina trying to raise more troops and trying to send more people into Persia and into Syria at the same time. No matter what he did at this point of time, he just didn't have the numbers to hold this territory down. Once again, the Muslims were fighting on two different fronts. And at the moment, the battles in Syria, Yarmouk was just about to get underway at this time. The battles in Syria seemed to be the most important thing and they were occupying much of Omar's attention. And so Omar ordered Muthanna to bring the Muslims back even further all the way up to the bare edges of the Arabian desert. So at this point, the Muslim forces had barely even a toehold in real Persian territory. What Omar really needed was the opportunity to just focus on one thing at a time. He really needed to either settle Persia or settle Syria and then deal with the other. At the time, Syria seemed to be the more pressing thing. And so Omar made up his mind that the best thing that he could do was try to delay action in Persia as long as he could and focus his attention on Syria. And so in Hajj of that year, Omar, who led the Hajj, he made a call to the thousands of Muslims gathered for the pilgrimage. He made a call asking them to volunteer and join the military. And with so many people gathered for such a religious experience and hearing the caliph ask them for the help and ask them to sacrifice their blood and money and perhaps even their lives, this time Omar got an amazing response and he was able finally to raise a large number of forces. Among the people who volunteered was one of the closest companions to Prophet Muhammad wasallam, the man we met in the previous episode, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. In fact, 
Omar appointed Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas to lead the Muslims in Persia once he arrived there and he also ordered him to enter into negotiations with the Persians. However, they both knew that this was just a delaying tactic, giving them time to deal with the situation in Syria. Now, we spoke about Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas in the previous episode, but let's just go over his background a little bit once more. He became Muslim. He accepted Islam at the age of 13. As we mentioned before, he was perhaps the third or fourth person to accept Islam. And so you're talking about Khadijah, then Abu Bakr, and then Ali, and then Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. And some may put Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas before Ali because Ali was only roughly nine years old at the time and just a young boy. However, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas was only 13, but it is likely he may have passed the age of puberty and therefore would have been considered, at least according to Islam, an adult male. Nonetheless, whichever one you put first, whether Ali or Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, one thing stands for sure. He was one of the first four people, one of the first four people to accept Islam. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas was known to be an excellent archer and he fought alongside Prophet Muhammad wasallam in all of the major battles. Badr, Uhud, Khandaq, Mecca. He was fighting for Islam and serving Islam for pretty much his entire life. So this man was no slouch. Before we go any further, let's try to get some dates and time set up all right the battle of the bridge which was the battle that the muslims lost against the persians that occurred in november 634 the battle of buwaib which was the muslim retaliation for the battle of the bridge that took place in april 635 the very next year for the next year and a half after the Battle of Buwaib, there were no major battles between the Muslims and the Persians. It was really just a lot of building up, preparing, and getting ready for what everyone knew was going to be the ultimate battle, which would be the Battle of Cordesia, which we are getting into right now. So while the Muslims in Persia were preparing for this ultimate showdown, the Battle of Cordesia, Omar was really preoccupied with the Romans in Syria, and all of this buildup was just before the Battle of Yarmouk. Therefore, to keep the Persians at bay while he focused on Yarmouk, Omar ordered Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas to enter into negotiations with the Persians because, once again, Omar just wasn't ready to fight two major enemies on two different fronts. And we have to understand that there are many things at play during this period of time. First, you have the fact that the Muslims were camped out in Persia for a long period of time. Just between the Battle of Buwaib, which was retaliation for the Battle of the Bridge in which the Muslims lost 4,000 soldiers, and the actual Battle of Cordesia, that was a year and a half. A year and a half of soldiers just being stationed in Persia and not really doing any real true fighting. 
We've spoken before about how well-equipped the Arabs were for these long journeys and how they really didn't have to have a big supply chain like most other militaries had. They could pretty much just live off of camel milk and dates and therefore carry out these far-off campaigns. Well, that ability, it has its limits. The Muslims were in Persia for over two years and being out this far away from home for such a long period of time, eventually the Muslims had to resort to raiding the Persian area surrounding them. There were just large forces out there at this point in time, at least from the Arabs' perspective. It was a very large force they had stationed here in Persia, far away from Medina, far away from home, and they needed food and supplies. And you had all this lush, fertile Persian territory around them just ripe for the picking. So the Muslims took to raiding the surrounding area, which got the people in these areas upset and made them complain to the emperor Yezdjid. Yezdjid was kind of getting impatient with his general Rustam taking so long to actually attack the Muslims. He wanted a big glorious fight. He wanted to rebuild and reclaim the glory of the Sassanid dynasty, his ruling family, the ruling family of Persia. And he wanted one great big glorious battle that would push the Muslims and the Arabs out of Persia forever. So growing impatient with Rustam trying to build up his forces and trying to carefully lay his battle plan, Yezdujir, the emperor, began to pressure the general to go ahead and start battle with the Muslims. Now the general, Rustam, even though he was a politician and a devious one at that, he was still a general. He was a fighting man. He had experience in battles, even though much of that battle was against his own people. The man still had battle and war experience. He knew that he couldn't just rush headlong into fighting the Muslims. He knew that marching out to fight the Muslims in an open area and not carefully laying his battle plan was going to be dangerous for him and would play right into the Muslims' hands. However, Rustam's delaying also benefited the Muslims as well because it allowed Omar ibn al-Khattab to steadily and slowly build up his forces in Persia while at the same time deal with the battles going on in Syria. So while Rustam thought he was only doing the best thing he could by taking so long to fight the Muslims, he was actually benefiting the Muslims. Ultimately, however, the complaints of the Persian people and the pressure from the Persian emperor Yezdujir forced Rustam to finally take action. So Rustam finally gathered his forces and marched out to meet the Muslims in battle. Though, of course, the battle didn't start right away. Instead, Rustam set up camp once again on the other side of the river across from the Muslim camp. This was the same river that these two sides had fought over twice before already, and actually even more times before that during the campaigns of Khalid ibn Walid. And to delay things even further, it was at this time that Omar ordered the Muslim commander, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas, to enter into negotiations with Rustam. 
And so this began several rounds of negotiation between Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas and the Persian general Rustam. And before we go any further, in case you're wondering whatever happened to Muthanna, who had been kind of pushed out of the leadership twice before, he wound up succumbing to his injuries suffered in the Battle of the Bridge, the one in which he advised the other commander, don't go across and meet the Persians, even though he technically survived that battle and he lived to lead the Muslims in the Battle of Bawaib right after that, in which the Muslims won, he was still severely injured, and ultimately he wound up dying from those injuries. So now, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas was the overall commander of the Muslim forces in Persia. There are several dialogues between the Muslims and the Persians. In fact, they actually tend to follow a certain pattern, sort of like this. Rustam would send a messenger to Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas asking for an envoy. Sa'ad would send one of the respected Muslims, but he would make sure he would also send a Muslim who happened to be what some would call an uncouth Arab, a Bedouin, someone who wasn't used to living in civilized society. The Persians would try to impress the Arab envoy with all of this regalness and wealth and pomp and circumstance, and the Arab Bedouin would simply just not be impressed. So then Rustam would begin a dialogue with the envoy, and he would belittle the Arabs, and he would disgrace them, and then he would go and praise the Persian empire and the Persian successes and all the things that they have done in the past. Rustam would then offer the Arab envoy wealth and peace and even some land and all sorts of things if only the Muslims and the Arabs would go back to Arabia and leave Persia. The Muslim envoy would then respond with the same demands and the same offer that had been made time and time again, either Islam, Jizya, or we're going to battle. And with that, the negotiations would end without there being any change in the current situation. In the meantime, while these negotiations were going along, both sides were steadily and increasingly preparing for the ultimate battle. Finally, it became clear to Rustam that negotiations weren't going to go anywhere. He had prepared as much as he could prepare. He had all of the troops that he could amass, and there was no long delaying the inevitable. This would be the Battle of Cordesia, and it would take place in the month of November 636, roughly two months after the conclusion of the Battle of Yarmouk. Rustam ordered his engineers to build a dam, like a large bridge, a large sturdy bridge that would allow his force of 60,000 men and 33 war elephants to cross over the river and meet the Muslims in battle. As you may have heard in previous episodes of this podcast, the Persian soldiers had this habit of chaining their legs together to show their bravery. As for the Muslims, with all of the preparation that Omar had done, with all of the buildup, with all of the reinforcements that they had tried to put together, they still only had roughly half of what the Persian force was. The Muslims only had 30,000 soldiers and not a single elephant to speak of. However, 
among this 30,000 man force. It also included 300 companions and 70 veterans of the Battle of Badr. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas was a different kind of commander than Khalid ibn Walid. Sa'ad wasn't as headstrong and as ready to rush headlong into battle as Khalid ibn Walid was. Furthermore, Sa'ad also did not partake in the battle like Muthanna before him and Khalid ibn Walid had. Instead, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas managed the battle from a high castle behind the battle lines where he could see the forces laid out in front of him. The terrain in Cordesia was not like the terrain in Syria. It didn't allow for these elaborate battle plans such as Khalid ibn Walid had put together. This was going to be a fight of pure brute strength. Whichever side killed more of the other was going to win. However, even though Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas may not have been the military genius that Khalid ibn Walid was, he knew what he was doing. He knew that he could not fight the Persians one-on-one. He knew it would not be wise to go on the offensive immediately. So just like Khalid ibn Walid had done at the Battle of Yarmouk in Syria, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas he would initially fight a defensive war and allow the Persians to come to him. Finally, the Persians completed their custom bridge, their forces crossed over the river, and they lined up in battle to face the Muslims. And as usual in this day and age, before the actual battle took place, the champions from either side strode out between the battle lines to challenge each other in duel. And this went back and forth several times between the Persian champions and the Muslim champions. Throughout these duels, both sides had victories and losses, but overall, the Muslims fared better than the Persians. When all of the dueling was done, Rustam ordered his Persian archers to unleash a volley into the Muslim lines, and this signaled the beginning of the Battle of Cordesia. The Muslims responded with a shower of arrows of their own, but just like in Syria, the Persian arrows were much superior, much stronger, and flew much further than the Muslim arrows. So while the Muslims were great archers and they had great accuracy, Ultimately, as far as the battle between the archers were concerned, the Persians inflicted much more damage on the Muslims than the Muslims did on the Persians. Rustam then ordered an all-out charge and led his cavalry into the Muslim right flank. Now, the Persian cavalry did not just include horses, it also included elephants. And when they charged into the Muslim right flank, the Muslims just couldn't stand up against that. For one thing, the Persians just simply outnumbered them. Secondly, the elephants spooked the Muslim horses. The horses had been used to seeing donkeys and camels and other horses, but it had never seen elephants before. So they were just not able to charge at the Persian elephants for the most part, and they were just completely spooked by it. So within a matter of minutes, Sa'ad ibn Abi Bakar saw his right flank simply falling apart. When he saw that, Sa'ad ibn Abi Bakar ordered a portion of his center flank to break off and support the right flank that was crumbling under the pressure of the Persian cavalry. 
This stabilized the situation for the Muslims, but then the Persian general Rustam ordered his forces to now charge into the Muslim left flank. And just like on the right side, the left side of the Muslim was also overwhelmed by the huge Persian numbers and they began to fall back as well. And once again, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas had to have some of his troops from the center break off and support the left flank which was beginning to disintegrate. But this time, rather than ordering the cavalry to support the soldiers on the left flank like they had done on the right flank, instead he ordered his cavalry to go right after the elephants and find some way to stop them. And so the Muslim cavalry, rather than join in the fighting with the Muslim soldiers, they rode past them, went straight at the elephants, and cut the ropes holding the riders' saddles on top of the elephants. This would cause the riders to fall down, and with no rider on top of them, the elephants just charged mindlessly and were really as much danger to the Persians as they were to the Muslims. After having successfully neutralized the elephants on his left flank, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas then used the same tactic to neutralize and take care of the elephants on his right flank. And so, with the elephants out of the picture, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas then ordered a general charge and the entire Muslim army ran forward into the Persian forces. The two sides locked in serious combat and the Muslims were able to punch through the Persian line in some spaces. But even though they were able to penetrate, they were never able to go all the way through to the back ranks towards where General Rustam was because the Persians would get themselves together and then repulse the Muslims. So the Muslims did make some headway in this charge into the Persian lines, but ultimately they had to call it back. And so by the end of fighting on that day, neither side had really lost anything as far as land or territory was concerned, nor had either side really gained anything as far as land, territory or position was concerned. On the second day of battle, Muslim reinforcements from Syria began to arrive. These were soldiers who had participated in the Battle of Yarmouk. Now Syria had been pacified and was under Muslim control. There was no threat from the Romans anymore. And so Omar began to send many of those troops over into Persia to support Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. So the two sides lined up for battle and then there was some dueling before the actual fighting got underway. And when that was over, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas called for a general charge and his soldiers ran forward towards the Persians. The Muslims charged into the Persians, but unlike the previous day's battle, they weren't really able to break through the Persian lines and they were ultimately pushed back. Now, there was one significant development which exhibits some of the out-of-the-box thinking that the Muslim commanders had at the time. The Persian elephants for the second day of the battle were not really part of the situation at this point. They had been badly wounded and dinged up in the first battle, and so they weren't really part of it. But the Persians still had their cavalry. And so one of the Muslim commanders, and I heard two different stories, but they both ultimately lead to the same thing. The Muslims put these really strange costumes on their camels to make them look like really freakish monsters. 
If you can kind of imagine during the Chinese New Year, the dragon costume that you sometimes see when many people are under the dragon and how it looks all crazy, something similar to that. A giant costume put over the camel that made it look like something the other animals, primarily the Persian horses, just weren't used to. And when they did this and the Muslims rode these camels into battle, it spooked the Persian horses and the cavalry became useless because the horses ran away at the sight of these strange creatures. Another similar story that I've heard about this incident was that Rather than putting these strange costumes on their camels, what the Muslims actually did was to take cowhide and camelhide and sew it in the shape of a ball and then blow into it to inflate it. So it was this giant hairy ball and then they would push it and roll it towards the Persian cavalry and that is what spooked the Persian horses. Either way, whether it was a costume on the camel or a giant inflatable hairball, one way or the other, the Muslims found some way to take the cavalry of the Persians out of the situation. The riders had no control of their horses and therefore the Persians didn't have a cavalry. And without a cavalry, the infantry was exposed. And you better believe Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas took full advantage of this. Saad ordered his forces to attack the Persian infantry and they hit them hard and on several occasions they almost broke through the Persian line but ultimately the Muslims were not fully successful in that. But even though it was a great idea and the Muslims had an excellent opportunity and they fought very hard, they were not able to break through the Persian lines. And this was primarily because the Persians were a much larger force. So the Muslims had to inflict severe damage to try to punch through the Persian lines. And the Persian numbers were just so great. The Muslims, no matter how hard they tried, just weren't able to cut their way through all of those ranks of soldiers. However, even though neither side was really gaining any ground or getting any better position, so to speak, the momentum was beginning to shift into the Muslims' favor, and everybody could feel it. And so the second day ended much like the day before it, with neither side having any clear advantage. On the third day of battle, the Persian elephants had been bandaged up and rested, and Rustam, the Persian general, had learned from the Muslim tactics two days before. He would not allow the Muslim riders to come up close to the elephants and cut their saddles and have them running all crazy throughout the ranks. Instead, for each elephant, he had them surrounded by a troop of soldiers to fight off any Muslim cavalry that might ride in close to do that. The thing is that the Persians didn't necessarily need the elephants to rampage through the Muslim ranks and crush them or anything like that. They didn't have to do that. The Persian riding the elephant could be very successful simply using bow and arrow to pick off Muslims one by one or using a spear or a javelin to throw down if he needed to. With these elephants being nearly indestructible and the Muslim horses scared of them anyway, the Persian war elephants were almost like modern day tanks, just living animals. 
Furthermore, if any of the elephants ever got out of control and the Persian rider knew there was no bringing it back under control, they always had something like a hammer and a pick where they could just drive it right into the elephant's brain and kill him immediately if it seemed as if he was going to cause damage on the Persian side. So the Persians had this whole method of warfare fully worked out. And so, with this advantage back on the field, Rustam, the Persian general, decided to go on the offensive and ordered his soldiers into an opening charge right at the beginning of battle on the third day. First, he had his archers send volley after volley after volley of arrows into the Muslim ranks, and all the Muslims could do was really put their shields up and hope they didn't get hit. The Muslims couldn't shoot back, but like we mentioned earlier, their arrows were not as strong, and they didn't fly as far as the Persian arrows did. When all of the arrow shooting was done, Rustam then had his cavalry, which included his elephants, rush into the Muslim ranks. And once again, he put the primary focus of his charge on the Muslim right flank. This time, the Muslims didn't really have an answer for the elephants, and it really began to look bad for them. And it was the Persian turn to punch through the Muslim ranks. The heavy charge of the elephants and the Persian new strategy of surrounding the elephants with soldiers was just too much for the Muslim ranks. And the Persians were able to punch through the Muslim lines and even get so far as to make an attempt to attack Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas in his castle. When the Persians punched through the Muslim lines, Rustam saw that they had a clear shot for Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas's castle and he ordered his cavalry to charge towards it. The cavalry ultimately were able to surround the castle, but fortunately for the Muslims, some of their forces saw what was going on and they broke off from the fighting to chase the cavalry off. And with that close call, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas realized that in order for him to win, he was going to have to do something about those elephants. If he did not get rid of those elephants once and for all, it would be almost impossible for him to win this battle. After all, it was the elephants causing the most damage and that was the primary advantage that the Persians had. And so Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas held a council with some Persians who had converted to Islam and switched sides with the Muslims. He asked them what could he do about the elephants? What was their weakness? What was the best defense against the elephants? These Persians, who were former soldiers themselves, they informed Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas that the elephants had one weakness, their eyes and their trunks. If they could be blinded or hit in their eyes, they were completely useless to the Persians. When he learned this, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas ordered his soldiers to attack the elephant's eyes and go for the trunk. While they couldn't necessarily get close to the elephants, they could shoot arrows at it and they could throw spears and javelins. And even though the Muslim arrows weren't as strong as the Persian arrows, they were good enough to put out an elephant's eye. And that's exactly what they did. The Muslims attacked the elephant's eyes with arrows and spears and some even got close enough to chop off the elephant's trunks. 
And when they did this, the elephants just went crazy. They were blind. They had no trunks, which was their primary way of picking things up and moving around and smelling and breathing. And the elephants were just, unfortunately for the elephant, blinded and in pain and most likely confused and not knowing what was going on. They would just go crashing through everybody. Everyone just got out of the way of the elephant when it went on this rampage. The Muslims would do this to elephant after elephant after elephant until the Persians had lost all of the elephants. They were all just either dead or running away off into the wilderness blind and most likely about to die. And now that the primary Persian weapon was gone, the Muslims got themselves together, reorganized their ranks, and put on a fresh charge against the Persians. The Persians didn't completely crumble, however. I don't want to give you that impression. They did hold their own, but ultimately, everyone knew the way this battle was going. By the end of the third day, both sides simply were at another stalemate, but the Muslims were clearly coming ahead. The third night actually stretched on into the fourth day as both sides continued to fight overnight, which is generally strange and not common during this era because it's very difficult to wage an effective battle when you can't see anything. But the battle was so fierce and the soldiers were so brutal that they continued to fight even after the sun had gone down all the way up until sunrise of the next day. And so they fought on into the fourth day, but still it was pretty much a stalemate. So by the fifth day, both sides were exhausted. They were worn out. They had lost thousands of men in the battle. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas was starting to lose a little bit of control over his soldiers. They were exhausted. They were tired of the fighting. And there was some grumbling about Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas up in his castle when many of these same men, they were used to fighting alongside Khalid ibn Walid and Muthanna, who would actually be right there in the ranks among them fighting. So they respected Saad ibn Abi Waqas because of who he was, you know, the third or fourth person to accept Islam. But there was some misgivings about the fact that he was nice and safe in his castle while they were out there fighting and putting their lives on the line. But the truth was that throughout much of this battle, Saad ibn Abi Waqas was suffering from a serious ailment that prevented him from actually taking part of the battle. And he had to pretty much lay down most of the time. But as can be expected, in the heat of battle, sometimes those things are overlooked and ignored. So with Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas losing a little bit of his command, a little bit of his control over the soldiers, another one of the Muslim commanders stepped up. One of actually Sa'ad's lieutenants stepped up. His name was Kaka. Kaka started to tried to rile his men up and rile his soldiers up and he spoke lines of poetry to invigorate them and encourage them to get back into the fight and not give up the cause that they had sacrificed so much for. Both Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqas and his lieutenant Kaqqaq, they could tell that they were near the breaking point. They could tell that their soldiers were really near the point of really just walking back to Medina. But they could also tell that the Persians were worse off than they were. And they could just hold out a little bit more. They could just muster up the strength for one more charge. 
he knew, Gawkaw that is, he knew that they had a very good chance of breaking the Persian back. Whatever he did, Gawkaw was successful and he was able to inspire the soldiers to muster up the strength for one more charge and one more attack. And so they lined up and prepared themselves for one more day of battle. On the fifth day of battle, the two sides lined up one more time and the Muslims charged into the Persian ranks. For the most part, the Persian line held firm against the Muslim offensive. But since they were just as bedraggled and exhausted as the Muslims were, eventually the Muslims were able to punch through some portions of the Persian line and this began the end of the battle. The Muslims not only punched through the Persian lines, they punched through the center of the Persian line. And lo and behold, who was behind that line but the general Rustam himself. Normally, he would be surrounded by dozens, maybe even hundreds of well-armed bodyguards. But because of all the fighting that had gone on for the previous four days, he had sent most of his bodyguards out into the battle and he had no more left. And so those few Muslims who managed to punch their way through the Persian lines, when they saw Rustam and they recognized who he was, they ran after him and immediately attacked him. Some sources say he put up a good fight, but ultimately the general Rustam was killed by a common Muslim soldier. The Persian soldiers, for their part, they fought bravely even with the death of their general, they tried to hold on as best as they could. But ultimately, the death of Rustam was really too much. The death of Rustam, combined with Gawkar's final charge against them, was too much for the Persians. And ultimately, they broke rank and started fleeing the battlefield. They were just too tired. They had lost all the elephants. They had lost their general. They had lost thousands of soldiers. The few remaining Persian soldiers wanted no more of this battle and they tried to run as best as they could. You would hope that the Muslims would recognize that the Persians had pretty much given up and no longer wanted to battle. But quite frankly, the Muslims were just as frustrated and fatigued and exhausted and war-weary as the Persians were, and they really gave them no quarter. In other words, they showed them no mercy. The Persians ran and headed for the dam and the river that they had crossed over from before, and a few did make it, but for the most part, those who ran away were chased down by the Muslims and simply cut to pieces, or they drowned in the river trying to get across. And that drowning was really the Persian faults because, unfortunately, as we mentioned earlier, many of them decided to chain themselves up as a sign of bravery. And so they went into the water with chains around their legs, and you can pretty much figure out what happened. It only takes one dead soldier or one tired soldier to pull the whole mass down. Now, of course, all of the Persians didn't run. Most of them did, but many of them did stand their ground and decided to fight to the end. And they did fight to the end, but ultimately they were cut down also. Sa'ad ibn Abi Bakas, he organized a force and sent them out after those Persians who did make it across the river with orders to find them, hunt them down, and kill them also. And then he sent word back to Medina informing Omar ibn al-Khattab 
of their victory. When Omar heard the news of the Muslim victory in Persia, this great battle that he had maneuvered and planned and begged and pleaded for soldiers to come to, it is reported that he just said simply, Subhanallah, 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 which means glory to Allah over and over and over again. Let's be clear of one thing. This battle, the Battle of Qadisiyah, was certainly a pivotal turning point in the war between the Muslims and the Persian Empire, the Sasanid dynasty. But it did not destroy the Persian Empire. They were still alive and kicking and still had some serious might behind them. However, it did mark the beginning of the end. Because now with Rustam gone and with this powerful, gigantic, large military that Rustam had created, destroyed, there was nothing between the Muslim forces, the Muslim armies, and the Persian capital of Tesiphon. And just two months later, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas would lead his forces onto the Persian capital. But that is a story for another day in the Islamic History Podcast. Okay, well, I hope you agree with me that it actually was important to go through these two battles in depth and not just glaze over them as I had originally intended. So just a little bit of house cleaning real quick. If you happen to be subscribed to this podcast, then you may have noticed an extra download last month. And this was a download of uh, Islamic studies class that I had recorded way back in 2013. I want to let you know that that was an accident. It wasn't supposed to be released to the public. That Islamic studies class is exclusive for members of the Islamic Learning Materials Club, which is a membership site. So the fact that you got it just happened to be a boo-boo by yours truly, and it wasn't some sort of slick marketing ploy trying to convince you to join the club. I have other ways of doing that. For instance, the fact that we will now be adding semi-exclusive content to the club, the Elm Club as I call it. There will be a new history series that will be added only to the club every month. So for those of you who are subscribed and have been subscribed for a long time, many of these episodes you have heard already. They are primarily various different history programs that I've done from the past. But if you haven't heard them yet, you can still get them. They are no longer part of the Islamic History podcast stream. They've been removed from there and they are now exclusive for club members. And every month I'm going to add a new one and we're going to just do this consistently, inshallah, going forward. For this month, the series that I called The Brothers Dracula, I recorded it last year. That will be available for club members only. If you are a member of the Elm Club, which you can join at IslamicLearningMaterials.club, you can join it for only $1 for the first month and then $7 each month after that. If you're already a member, then the episode is there. The two episodes, really, because it's two of them. You can go ahead and listen to them right now. 
However, if you are not a member of the club and you're not ready to join at this time, but you still would like to listen to the Brothers Dracula series, you can still download the entire two-part series for only $4.99. Links will be in the show notes at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash victory. Go there and you will see the link to the episode if you would like to download it without joining the club. But if you are a member of the club, you already have it. You don't have to pay anything extra. It is just one of the many benefits for being a club member. And so, like I mentioned at the top of the episode, that we really had to go into depth with these two battles, the Battle of Yarmouk and the Battle of Cordesia. These were just very crucial turning points in the advance of Islam in these two areas. So I think I'm going to continue on this trajectory of slowing down a little bit. At first, I really wanted to push through this series, but we'll see how things go. I'm kind of playing it by ear. I really do believe I want to spend more time on Omar's caliphate because so far I've only talked about his battles and the victories that he was a part of, but we haven't really gotten into his administration and there was much more to his reign than just warfare and battling and conquest. There's more to what Omar ibn al-Khattab meant to the Muslim world than just fighting. So inshallah, we will start doing that a little bit more in the next episode. And so just want to share a little bit of good news as far as this podcast is concerned. Alhamdulillah, I first and foremost thank Allah. Then I also thank you, my listener, for sticking with this show and subscribing and listening and downloading all the time when I do release the show on my fairly inconsistent schedule. I thank you because of, first of all, Allah's mercy, but also because of your listening to the show and being a part of this effort. Alhamdulillah, the Islamic History Podcast got all the way to number two, the number two Islamic podcast in iTunes. That was an amazing feat. Alhamdulillah, I had never before been really much higher than 30. And to just go there to number two, I am extremely grateful for that. I mean, this podcast, your podcast, because you are a part of it also, the Islamic History Podcast was ranked higher than Baina, higher than Numan Ali Khan, higher than Imam Siraj Wahaj's podcast. Now, they don't really have their own podcast. These are just people or individuals or companies that turn their lectures into a podcast was so not the same thing. But still, to know that this podcast was ranked higher than these other very, very famous Muslims who, quite frankly, are much more qualified Islamically than I am. I am alhamdulillah. I'm very, very grateful. And I thank you for your support. And I ask you to continue supporting the show, continue downloading, continue liking it on iTunes if you haven't done that already. Continue to subscribe to it if you haven't done that already. And as another little bit of news here, the Islamic History Podcast is now available on all Android devices that have the Google Play Music app. It has recently been added to the Google Play app and you can now subscribe to it on Google Play. For the longest time, Android didn't have native support for podcasts. So in order to listen to any podcast on an Android device, you either had to download a specific podcast app like Stitcher or Pocket Cast or something like that, 
or pretty much that was the only way. But now you don't have to download anything extra. The Google Play Music app comes pre-installed with pretty much all Android devices. And all you have to do is just go in there and subscribe to the Islamic History Podcast. So whether you use Android devices or you use Apple iOS devices, you can still subscribe to the Islamic History Podcast. And of course, if you prefer to listen to this through your PC, you can always listen to it there. In fact, you can just go to the show notes to listen to this episode or just go to islamiclearningmaterials.com slash podcast and listen to everything in the current season as well as the last season of the Islamic History Podcast. So a few shout outs real quick before we wrap it all up. First, I want to give a shout out to uh, my brother in Islam, Brother Kareem from Hak Dawa Media. It is available on Blog Talk Radio. He interviewed me about basic Islamic studies way back in September of 2015. And Alhamdulillah, I just wanted to encourage you to go listen to his show. If you would like to learn a little bit more about Islam or discuss Islam or talk about Islam or hear about Islam, especially from a new Muslim's point of view, then his show is, alhamdulillah, very good for that. Links will be available in the show notes at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash victory. And one more shout out. If you enjoy history in general, I implore you and I suggest you check out the blog Index of Tyrants. The link again will be in the show notes at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash victory. Great historical information. If you are a fan of history, which you should be if you're listening to this one, then inshallah, you will enjoy his blog also. And so one more time, just to reiterate, the links to everything that we've mentioned today will be available at the show notes for this episode. You only have to remember one URL, islamiclearningmaterials.com slash victory. That is the show notes for this episode. Just go there. Everything that we mentioned will be there and you don't have to worry about trying to remember a whole bunch of websites and URLs. So one last thing before I wrap up, one last thing, inshallah, I'm kind of running out of English nasheeds or English Islamic music to post on the episodes. You're probably familiar with the show by now that at the close of the show, I generally have an English language nasheed and I'm kind of running out of them. I don't know where to go. So if you have any suggestions, please let me know. I prefer the English language. I know there's so many more in Arabic and Urdu and even other languages, but the vast majority of the listeners to this show are English speakers and I can find them. I'd also prefer if they don't have musical instruments along with them to make everybody happy. If you know any good English language nasheed that I'm not aware of, please just send me an email with your suggestions or inbox me on Facebook. Just look for Mutaki Ismail. There aren't but so many of us out there. And let me know if you have any suggestions for English language Muslim Islamic nasheeds, preferably with no music. But until then, let's write out with our guide is the Quran by Yusuf Islam.
Our guide is the Quran, our religion is Islam. Five noble pillars upholding what is virtuous. To make the testimony is the base of the faith and the fast and the prayer, the pilgrimage in charity. Our guide is the Quran, our religion is Islam. Five noble pillars upholding what is virtuous. To make the testimony is the base of the faith and the fast and the prayer, the pilgrimage in charity. To make the testimony is the base of the faith and the fast and the prayer.